listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. There's a parable that is told about how religious communities access truth. It's an old, old, old parable. And the parable goes like this. One day, a king and his nobles are observing a group of blind men who are encountering an elephant for the very first time. They have never before encountered a creature like this. And so each of the blind men comes upon the elephant and they grab a certain part. One of the blind men feels the side of the elephant and he concludes that an elephant is flat and soft. And another of the blind men gets a hold of the tusk of the elephant. And he concludes that an elephant is hard and thin. And still another blind man gets a hold of the trunk of the elephant. And he concludes that an elephant is wrinkly and tubular. And when these men draw their conclusions about an elephant and they share their different conclusions with one another... They wind up fighting because they have drawn different conclusions. And the moral of the parable that is often given is that no one religion or worldview can have all of the truth. In fact, it is arrogant to presume that one can have all of the truth because everyone's truth is subjective. I have my truth and you have your truth. And none of us can claim an absolute exclusive possession of the truth or some macrocosmic picture of the truth. This is the way that many of our neighbors feel about religions and worldview. And maybe you've felt the pressure on this point in your job or maybe in school. You have professors that would teach as much. They believe that Christians are dishonest or just flat out wrong in their comprehensive truth claims and their claims to possess exclusive truth. Well, in the 20th century, uh, there was a missiologist by the name of Leslie Newbegin, Bishop Newbegin. He suggested that the real point of the blind man and the elephant parable is constantly overlooked. If the king and his nobles were also blind, there would be no story to tell. Because you can only tell this story from the position of sight. The plain truth of the parable is that the king and his nobles could actually see the larger reality that the blind men only knew in part. Which is to say that there is a comprehensive body of truth that we can know. Christians believe that this comprehensive body of truth can be known. But how do we gain confidence in the truth? How do we separate truth from error? How do we know we're not just holding some part of the elephant and missing the rest? It takes a community. It takes community. Today we are going to continue through our series on Christian community by spending some time talking about the relationship 
between truth and community. We're going to talk about truth and community because here's the deal. Christians don't merely build community around a shared commitment to service. Nor do Christians build community around a shared stage of life or particular career paths. We're not a mere vocational affinity group. We don't just build community around national origin or degrees of educational achievement. No. Christians build community around the truth of what God has revealed about himself and about humanity in the scriptures. But how can we maintain our grip on this body of truth which preserves our community? We must listen to our whole community and speak the whole truth in love. Those are our two points for today. We must listen to our whole community and we must speak the whole truth in love. So let's look at this first point. We must listen to our whole community. Now, there's this ironic trend that I've noticed in talking to people who identify as ideologically progressive and reject Christianity or who have rejected significant doctrines of the Christian faith. These progressive folks who are allegedly the most open-minded and diversity-loving and people-accepting, these folks who constantly rail against old white men in academic circles have actually built their entire lives exclusively on the ideas that were given to them by Western white elites. In other words, they actually have the most narrow homogeneous sourcing for their ideas. This is something I've noticed. I'm saying this today because I want to cut to the clear. I want to be clear. I want you to have understanding as you think about your encounters with the world or even your own thoughts. Whether these friends know it or not, they were discipled by the architects of modernity. This is where they learned their religious skepticism. This is where they learned to deconstruct religious faith. This is where they get their axioms and interpretive grids. And these are the authorities to which they look. It's an utter inconsistency in their framework. But beginning with verse 4 of our text... The Apostle Paul begins to drive in on the unifying truths of the Christian faith. Why do I bring that up? I bring up this this first little note that I made because people all around us are trying to tear down the truth of the Christian faith. They are trying to make you feel foolish for your convictions to, to Christ and to the Christian faith. Your belief in scripture. They are trying to make you feel outdated, antiquated, and foolish. But I am countering that narrative with the words of the Apostle Paul. Beginning with verse 4 of our text, the Apostle Paul drives in on the unifying truths of the Christian faith. And you can see him repeat the word one seven times, bringing this home. In verse 4, the Apostle Paul tells the church in Ephesus that there is one body and one spirit. Now check this out. Paul is teaching us at least two critical things In this first note, first, he's saying that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, created one body. And that body is comprised of believers from all around the globe, 
from a multitude of ethnicities and cultures, and from every age in history. This is the one body to which we belong as Christians. In other words, Christian community is not just about the local group of people that we go to church with on Sunday mornings. Our community also includes the global and historic church. So to to be honest, if we are going to really say that we are committed to community, then we must embrace the global and historic church. In no way, shape, or form do we really care about community as Christians. We don't care about Christian community if we are willing to ignore or devalue the global and historic church. That's the first thing. Second, Paul is saying that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is what he says right before he talks about one body. So in other words, what Paul is saying is we are, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace with this diverse global and historic church. In other words, if we are to live faithfully in Christian community, then we must not only listen to the people in our local community, we must listen to the whole community. Unity and diversity is built into the Christian community and its ethics. And anyone who would lay a hard word against Christianity itself, quite frankly, is ignorant of Christianity. And any Christians who live contrary are betraying the faith. It's this one global and historic body through whom the spirit has worked and through whom he continues to teach the rest of the body. But how can we make sense of Paul's teaching here? Why must we listen to the whole community? What does it actually do in our lives? How does it take shape? There are a number of reasons, and I'm going to develop a few of them today. And I want you to hear me in a spirit of love, trying to bring you into a deeper appreciation. You can't really talk noise about cross-cultural diversity if if you're not willing to wrestle with the global and historic reality of our community. So let's talk about a few reasons why it's important for us to listen to the whole community. First, listening to this one body is what helps us to keep in step with that one spirit, to look toward that one hope, to be faithful to our one Lord, to keep our grip on that one faith, to live into the identity confirmed in that one baptism, to live as children of that one God and father of us all. Do you see this? All of these unity statements, one body, one spirit, one this, one that, one this. It's no accident that one body is first in the list because that one body is crucial to helping us to live into the rest of these unity statements. Our participation In the life of the Trinity, because this list of ones is framed by the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, 
the community is crucial to helping us to participate in Trinitarian life, the life of God. Second, we must listen to our whole community because they help us to have confidence in the transcendent, transcultural truth of our faith and how to embody this faith in real situations. We often needlessly try to reinvent the wheel because we're ignoring important conversations, explanations, and insights that have already been worked out by the whole community, the global and historic church, better than we can. There's an incredible wisdom to receive if we would just listen, but also confidence because of their testimonies. We get to, we get to lay claim to be heirs of the brilliance of African church father Augustine, the resilience of Polycarp in the face of martyrdom, to the changed life of people who were absolutely going in the opposite direction and their lives were changed because of their encounter with Christ. We get this help and confidence. Third, we must listen to the whole community because they provide clarity and sanity around hot button issues of our time and place. They provide sanity and clarity around the hot button issues of our time and place. To put this another way, listening to the global and historic church helps us to avoid making gray areas into black and white fundamentalism. And they help us to avoid making black and white issues into gray areas, theological liberalism. Think about it. If the American church had listened to the unified voice and witness of the church on justice, voices like Augustine and Basel and Chrysostom, if they had listened to the whole community, there would have been no slavery, no Jim Crow, and no modern-day voices calling Christianity the white man's religion. If the American and Western churches had listened to the whole community. There's more to say about these hot button issues, but let's keep rolling. Fourth, we must listen to our whole community because they add cultural self-awareness to our understanding of our faith. You realize each of us has a faith that is culturally expressed. And one of the great challenges of living in cross-cultural community is that all of us are tempted to raise our cultural preferences to the level of theological imperative. You must do it like me. You must do it like I do it. And, and, and a lot of times what we're giving people is culture, not scripture. It's commonplace these days to hear negative sweeping statements leveled against Christianity. But what is most sad to me is that most, if not all, of these statements, they demonstrate a cultural ignorance. Because the way they describe the church only applies to white evangelicalism in America. And they get on their high horse and they talk about how Christians are this and Christians are that. And the only thing they have in mind are white evangelicals. In other words, they have completely erased black, brown, Asian, Pacific Islander. 
Christians and their voices. It's complete erasure. This cultural ignorance pretends that there is no witness in India or China or Korea or the Middle East. Now listen, it's fair to critique the church. And wherever the church has departed from its faith and witness, it needs to hear the words of criticism and repent and return. But when someone says Christians only care about power or Christians are pawns of the Republican Party or any sweeping statement is made about Christians, what you're mostly hearing is a reductionistic statement about white evangelicalism. And I understand when this comes from non-Christians. I don't expect non-Christians to be thinking in global and historic terms about the Christian faith. But this happens too often among professing Christians and former Christians. The so-called exvangelical crowd is guilty of a near-complete erasure of global and historic Christianity. Had they listened to the whole community, they could have critiqued their faith and kept it. Instead, they maintained cultural blinders and lost it. Do you see what I'm, what I'm trying to say? There are major progressive attacks against the Christian faith. The attacks from the, le- from the left are different from the attacks from the right. And we have talked over the history of this church. We have laid many hard words on the right. The left needs to hear those hard words too. As my sister Ashley Williams said, these hands are rated E for everybody. You know, (laughs) you got to receive it. Don't get defensive. Receive the word implanted. (laughs) Because here's what I'm saying to you. The same people who are who are decrying the, the, the narrowness of what they call conservative Christianity have their own narrowness, but it's not, it's not examined. It goes, it goes hidden and un, un, unaccepted. Like they, they don't acknowledge it. Fifth, we must listen to our whole community because their example leads us to repent of being disciples of our culture rather than disciples of Christ. Why do you need to look at the global and historic church? Because they're going to help you to see where you've been more a disciple of the culture than a disciple of Jesus. For example, when we see how Benedictine monks faithfully embodied hospitality, when we see how our African and Latino brothers and sisters share their material resources, when we see how our Asian brothers and sisters care for the elderly, we can see how we have diverged from our Christian witness and ethic and we can return to the Lord in repentance. If Western Christians today would listen to the voices of historic Christian women like Potamena of Alexandria, Agatha of Syria, and Agnes of Rome, all of whom were martyred for faithfully holding a Christian sexual ethic, we wouldn't be muddying the ethical waters around sexuality and theological anthropology right now. If we listened to the whole community, there is a global Christian witness to the historic Christian sex ethic. 
And it is consistent, y'all. Never been in question. Let me give you an example of what it looks like to listen to the whole community in the face of a very challenging cultural issue right now. There was a big debate in the United Methodist Church over the issue of revising their church's doctrine and practice regarding same-sex marriage and affirming clergy. And an African delegate named Dr. Jerry Kula stood to make his remarks. And this is a portion of what he said. And I quote, he says this to his whole denominational gathering. He says this, friends, please hear me. We Africans are not afraid of our sisters and brothers who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, questioning, or queer. We love them, and we hope the best for them. But we know of no compelling arguments for forsaking our church's understanding of Scripture and the teachings of the church universal. Please hear me when I say as graciously as I can... We Africans are not children in need of Western enlightenment when it comes to the church's sexual ethics. We do not need to hear a progressive U.S. bishop lecture us about our need to grow up. Let me assure you, we Africans, whether we have liked it or not, have had to engage in this debate for many years now. We stand, listen, we stand with the global church not a culturally liberal church elite in the U.S. We stand with our Filipino friends. We stand with our sisters and brothers in Europe and Russia. And yes, we stand with our allies in America. We stand with farmers in Zambia, tech workers in Nairobi, Sunday school teachers in Nigeria, biblical scholars in Liberia, pastors in the Congo, United Methodist women in Cote d'Ivoire, and thousands of other United Methodists all across Africa who have heard no compelling reasons for changing our sexual ethics, our teachings on marriage, and our ordination standards. He continues, we are grounded in God's word and the gracious and clear teachings of our church. On that, we will not yield. We will not take a road that leads us from the truth. We will take the road that leads to the making of disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. I hope and pray for your sake that you will walk down the road with us. We would warmly welcome you as our traveling companions. But if you choose another road, we Africans cannot go with you. If schism occurs, progressive Methodists in the U.S. have suggested that African Methodism would not be able to sustain itself without U.S. financial aid. With all due respect, a fixation on money seems to be more an American problem than an African one. We get by on far less than most Americans do. We know how to do it. I'm not sure you do. So if anyone is so naive or condescending as to think we would sell our birthright in Jesus Christ for American dollars, then they simply do not know us. We are seriously joyful in following Jesus Christ and God's holy word to us in the Bible. And in truth, we think many people in the U.S. and in parts of Europe could learn a great deal from us. The United Methodist Churches pastors and lay people who partner with us acknowledge as much. 
Please understand me when I say the vast majority of African United Methodists will never ever trade Jesus and the truth of the Bible for money. That's just a portion. It's a stunning rebuke. He names their ideological imperialism. Essentially what he says is, this is just 2.0 of what y'all did to Africa back in the day. Y'all spliced Africa up, you took control, and you tried to make us do your bidding. And now you're trying to do it ideologically. He names it. He names the inherent condescension born of white supremacy. Where the only voices that the U.S. church is willing to consider were white Western voices with white Western sources. And he says, get that trash out of here. We don't, we don't need you to come in in your condescension, born of white supremacy, to tell us Africans about the scriptures on this point. We're listening to the, to the global church. This, is, this has been worked out historically. And he also affirms their essential unity with the global and historic church in discerning the teachings of Scripture. You can say, oh, well, the Scriptures, well, like they're open to any kind of interpretation. Well, well, you know, what's to keep us from just like making it say whatever we want? The answer, interpretive community. Not your idiosyncratic reading of the Scriptures to make it say what you want it to say. You need to understand Scripture in concert with the whole community. What we hear from Dr. Kula is the sound of speaking truth in love. And that brings us to our next and final point. We must speak the whole truth in love. In verse 11, Paul tells us that Christ has distributed his gifts to the church. And those gifts are actual people who lead and shepherd and teach God's people to equip them for the work of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. And this flows out of the point that we just covered. But according to Paul, these gifts address some vulnerabilities in the Christian community. Look at verse 14. Take a look. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. If you follow to chapter 6, Paul sees that the battle's not against flesh and blood merely. And you are naive to think that there are not schemes at work as advances are made against the truth of the Christian faith. You're naive. Don't be naive. Don't be ignorant of the schemes. Paul is helping us here. He's helping us to see. He's painting a picture here of an immature person whose life amidst shifting ideological landscapes tosses them around like a ship without a rudder. Western culture, here's what's interesting. You have to know your milieu. You have to know your context. And listen, Western, Western culture embraces religious ambiguity as a virtue and it decries religious certainty as sin. Do you see that? That's, that's what happens in the world. If you're ambiguous, unclear, fo fo foggy or fuzzy, you're celebrated. If you are clear, you're denigrated. But Paul presents doctrinal instability as a mark of immaturity. That's what he does in his text. And then he goes on to detail the communal response 
to immaturity. In verse 15, he says, don't be blown around by all the shifting ideological waves in the world. But rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. As we deepen our understanding of truth through engaging scripture and the whole community, we are to speak the truth in love to one another. We like to speak the truth in anger. We like to speak the truth in self-righteousness and pride. But we are called to speak the truth in love. And this not only refers to the difficult truths of correction and warning that all of us need to hear. How many of you need to hear the words of correction and warning? And let all God's people raise their hand. Right? If you don't think that you ever hear the words, you need to hear the words of correction and warning, you are deluded. You're deluded. And so if we know that we need to hear those words, we, we ought not be defensive when those words are brought to us. And we ought not be afraid to give those words of life to one another. That's part of the built-in function of the way the Christian community is to remain healthy. And not, speaking the truth in love not only refers to the difficult truths, though, the difficult warnings and corrections, it also refers to the kind and compassionate truths. We need to hear the truth in love to expose the lies that we have believed about God, that he doesn't care, that he won't provide, that he can't be trusted. We need to hear the truth in love to expose the lies we've believed about ourselves, lies about our value, lies about our identity, deceitful lies that we have believed about identity. This is who I am. No. God has told you who you are. And it's so much better than what you want to call yourself. That identity is the identity that leads to glory. All other identities are life-stealing. That includes sexual identities that are raised in such a way, they are related to in such a way that it obscures or it diminishes your sense of identity in Christ. Now, identity doesn't work like compartmentalized, like, oh, let me, let me put on this identity now, and then let me put on my Christian identity. That's not how identity works. It's more cohesive and integrated. But what I'm saying is that you need to allow yourself to be defined by the precious truths of what God has declared over you, not what your culture declares over you. They will never be able to match what God speaks over you. In truth or love. We have to speak the truth in love to one another to help us to overcome the lies that we believe about ourselves, lies about our status and our future. We need to hear the truth in love concerning the distance between our beliefs and our behaviors. In other words, we need the truth in love concerning our hypocrisies. Because that's one thing that all religious people should be most terrified of, is the life of religious hypocrisy. Jesus blasted that. Let's not get blasted. Here's the deal. We must be a truth and love people because silent passivity is a betrayal of our community. We may withhold the truth because we don't want to hurt 
or offend somebody. But you need to hear me when I say this. You are not more loving than God. You are not more gracious than God. You are not more generous than God. You are not more wise than God. Everything he has given us in his word is for our ultimate flourishing and our good and for the good of our brothers and sisters and our neighbors. To think that you are going to be more loving than God by editing him or withholding what he has to say, even though it appears hard to you, is like the surgeon getting that scalpel to the skin and then quivering and saying, I don't want to hurt them. It's the scalpel that will save them to take away the cancerous growth inside. That's what speaking the truth in love is like. It's surgery. God gave us his word of truth because he loves us deeply. And nowhere do we see this precious truth more clearly than in the gospel. It's in the gospel, y'all. Jesus didn't just speak the truth in love to people like Peter and the woman at the well and Nicodemus. Jesus was the truth spoken in love. The book of Hebrews says that God has spoken in a son. God has spoken to us in his son. Jesus is God's truth in love message spoken to us. He is the word made flesh. He is the truth and the life. And when that word comes to you, you get the true message of love from the father when you see Jesus. You understand that Jesus is the true message of love from the Father that says, you're a great sinner, but I am a great Savior. Jesus is the true message of love from the Father that says, you are sick, but I am a healer. Jesus is the true message of love from the Father that says, you are a criminal, but I am a judge who drops the charges. And when you receive gospel truth and you are motivated and strengthened by that truth and love that you have in the gospel, you're empowered to play that role in the life of your community. The God who has spoken truth and love wants a community that speaks truth and love. So what do you go do with this? What do you go do with this? A few quick things. Go have that hard conversation. The one you've been avoiding, the one you've been trying to dance around, the one where uh, the friend says something crazy, you're like, <laughs> and you're kind of like you're not you're not completely endorsing it, but you don't want to make them feel bad. Like like they said something crazy, but like you're like, <laughs> you know, you crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh-uh. You need to have the conversation. Have that hard conversation. That hard conversation may need to be with your children. That hard conversation may need to be with a dear friend in your community group. That hard conversation may need to be with a parent. Speak the truth in love. Go have that hard conversation. Next, lay down your defensiveness. Don't be defensive. If we are half as bad as the scriptures describe us, we should never be surprised. You remember that old word by Charles Spurgeon when he said, if anyone criticizes you, don't get upset. If they knew the truth you would not come out a winner in their edit, okay? 
they would have painted the picture far worse than what they actually did. So don't get upset about your critics. <laughs> Lay down your defensiveness. You have no need to be defensive because your identity does not rest upon your performance if you're a Christian. It rests upon the righteousness of Christ, which is why we sang the song earlier. <laughs> Lay down your defensiveness. Next, dovetailing off of last week. If somebody has spoken the truth in love to you, instead of resenting them, go and thank them. It takes tremendous courage and faith and obedience to the Lord to enter into redemptive conflict. It's really hard. All of us who have done it know it. Now, when you're in ministry, you kind of live in that space and you kind of get more accustomed to it. But what I'm saying to you is, that, that's often difficult for lay folk to engage in. And so if someone has come to you and spoken the truth and love to you, go thank them. That's real love. Remember what the proverb says. The wounds of a friend are faithful, but the kisses of the enemy are profuse. Flattery is of the devil. Slander is when you say things behind people's back that you wouldn't say to their face. Flattery is when you say to people's faces what you wouldn't say behind their back. You're amazing. You are wonderful. You're this, you're that. And behind their back, you're like, yeah, they're kind of chump change, right? Speech ethics, y'all. Speech ethics. If someone has spoken a hard word to you, go encourage them. Let us be the kind of community that maintains a robust connection to the global and historic church, a, co a community that sees the whole elephant of the kingdom and the gospel. Let us be the kind of community that preserves and loves one another by speaking the truth in love. Amen? Let's pray. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.